Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Canines Talking Sense. I'm your host, Cameron Ford. So today we are, of course, out here in Las Vegas, but I have a guest from the great white north up in Canada, my friend Brad Gillespie. Brad, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, Cam. I appreciate the time for sure. Absolutely. No. And, you know, you and I have been friends for now a number of years and we crossed paths for years before that. But I know you're also a person who kind of lays low and, and you do lots of training within your areas. But, you know, I've known you because of how skilled you are as a trainer, but a lot of people may not be familiar with you. So give us a little bit of a background about you and, you know, how you got into this and then how you got to where you are today. Okay, sure. I'm I kind of always reserved to do it because maybe it's a bit of a lunchbox letdown or something. But uh, I started in policing 20, 28 years ago um, and started in canine about 20, just over 20 years ago um, where I worked uh municipal center as a dog handler, a pretty busy town for us in Canada. So I got a lot of great opportunities. I think probably the the highest crime rate per capita in the country. So it was really fun from a canine perspective. We were still allowed to um, pursue people and chase bad guys. And you were still allowed to put criminals in jail and stuff back then. So it was, so it was good. Um, I've always been in the military and a fuller part-time between a, few different jobs so I um, partway through my canine time uh, I took a leave of absence and went back with in in the U.S. I guess you guys would call uh, active duty so an active mm-hmm. duty to spend 10 years doing some canine stuff with the military and uh, about five years ago uh, I had I went back to full-time law enforcement where I work as a trainer um, and kind of a pretend handler. I still have some dogs, but most of my stuff is training. And uh, um, for uh, a large agency up here in Canada, where I look after ex- primarily explosive detection and kind of tactical integration, but touch all the other profiles as well. So yeah, yeah that's that's me. So in obviously, you've done this for a long time, and we've both kind of watched the industry evolve quite a bit over these years. Um, What's something that you've seen change a lot? And obviously, since we're heavily in detection on this podcast, what is some of the things that you've gone through that you've seen when it comes to detection that's been a big change uh, for you? So I think, I mean, my personal journey with it, it was very similar to yours. I think mirroring, you know, we were, I think we were both in the military at similar times. I kind of went around 2007 to 2017 window of time and you were involved in for part of that window as well and um, marking behavior and certainly involving looking at some of the science more uh, in terms of approaches to training I think are are the maybe the outcomes where some of maybe the biggest one is and whether it's a result of social media or what which I'm very ignorant to social media but uh, the the openness to sharing and discussing, I think, has been a, a big one. And it certainly still has a long way to go. But I know 20 years ago, there was a lot of people wouldn't even talk about where they bought dogs from, never mind training techniques or any of those things. And yeah. I think our community and some of the conferences, you know, you know, Bob Eaton being one of the 
one of the originals in terms of conferences that people have sort of forgotten about over the years and yeah. then, and then and hits and the old law dogs and stuff like those coming together really, I think um, really has helped a lot with idea sharing. So that's a big one where I think there's way less confrontational discussions where people can mostly just kind of go, you know, we all just kind of need to suck a little bit less. And if we can mm-hmm. all share ideas, it's a pretty good thing. Yeah, no, and it's, you brought up a good one there, the International Police Canine Conference, the ones that Bob used to do. Yeah, I I remember those, those. yeah. Those were great learning for me. I remember traveling to those, and it was like the internet was still kind of sort of a thing, but you really couldn't get a lot of information, and you'd show up, and and they were great because everybody had to to have, um, you know, most people brought dogs with them. There was a lot of hands-on stuff, and instructors would come around from i went to a couple and they're they were awesome that's a, a oh yeah quite a while ago now yep. i guess they probably did definitely dating ourselves for sure but <laughs> yeah they were great yeah oh yeah no the i mean because he also brought so many aspects together it wasn't just you know one side or the other it wasn't just patrol it was you know detection and and patrol but they'd also got into bringing helicopters out and really good scenarios that got people outside of their comfort zones you know doing one of the ones i remember was always officer down and you know how did they have to deal with the dog the other officer that was down and then there's still engagement to deal with and so and it is funny because obviously today there's a whole generation of canine handlers and trainers who never saw this stuff and of course with the growth of social media there's a lot of sharing of those um uh, kind of ideas and it, it comes out as new but there's many of us that remember we're like well yeah that's it's new to you guys, not necessarily new to us, but there are some, you know, little twists that they've done today that didn't we didn't do back then either. So it's not necessarily new, but there is some twist to things that obviously weren't there when we were doing it. Yeah, for sure. No, absolutely. I mean, everything everything needs to evolve, and I think that's mostly an exciting thing. It's important never to. I think we should not make the same mistakes over and over again. We should, you know, generations need to make new mistakes. So learn from everybody's old mistakes and <laughs> keep making mistakes because that's how we learn. But but make new ones, man. Like, let's move past. <laughs> let's stop making the same mistakes we were made 20 years ago. If you're making the same mistake from 20 years ago, that's the problem. Making mistakes isn't the problem. Just make just, just make new mistakes and find new things to screw up because I know I've found plenty of things to screw up on my own and um, just find new things and keep learning. No, it is the same for me. I mean, it's an ever evolving process uh, as a detection dog trainer and handler, because there's just things that are coming to us informational wise that weren't there even a year or two ago. Or, you know, again, you know, seeing somebody sharing a, a technique that they're using, you go, oh, wow, that actually is something that's pretty cool. I'll share one of the ones that I just went through recently. Um, having Simon Prince out here, uh, he utilizes the place board quite a bit in detection, mostly just to, you know, it's a real handy thing when you're training by yourself to have your dog be able to, you know, sit and stay and on the board and then you can go move things around and do things. So that aspect was nice. But it came out of a byproduct for him, which was having a dog learn to be calmer and starting the search off in a calmer state of mind versus just being restrained by the handler or tied out or what have you. And he applies it not only with the lineups, but with other things too. 
And I found that really helpful and handy for, especially for certain types of dogs more so than other ones, but it was a really good thing. I'm like, yep, I'm stealing that as a trainer and applying that to, (laughs) to, to my training repertoire now. And, uh, and I know you and I have, have done that obviously a lot throughout the years. I know when I came out and visited, uh, your training center, um, we had a lot of the same things and we had both taken from each other. I I know you had the seam wall and then from you, I took the pipe wall and then, I did a little uh, twist to your pipe wall by putting it, making it two-sided and put it on wheels. And the other side, I put pegboard on the one side and pipes on the other side. So that was just, you know, all these things I think really help people, you know, in training. It's not just, um, if you're not taking some good ideas, you're, you're missing out. That's for sure. Oh, 100%. I mean, and that pipe board was, you know, one of the guys here, Murray, he put that together with hand some of our other handlers and he had saw a version of something down in the States that he had wanted. And I kind of liked the, you know, what I saw in Sweden with the bricks and stuff, but I wanted to have a way to be able to clean it and not yeah. have the, the contaminant contamination issues. And then I saw you put the pegboard on there. I'm like, why didn't I think about putting pegboard on there? So <laughs> yeah, that's uh, yeah, it's good. And that placeboard thing's a pretty good idea as well. Now that you mentioned that, you know, until the guys just spin their dogs up to bring them, you know, it's like a building search for a person. Everybody mm-hmm. ramps their dogs up at the threshold so they'll go deep into the building and then wonder why they have noise and control issues at a threshold. But, um, yeah, yeah, that makes good sense to bring them in, put them in a good, calm state of mind and get their headspace and timing right and then and then have them actually so they're in a spot where they can search place just run in circles around a room. Yeah, and, and where it, I've seen it really help was um, getting the dog to start searching right away versus that wasted, you know, say 10 feet, 20 feet, depends on the dog, right? So it, this just really helped dogs to go, as soon as I step off this board, I'm starting my search. And that to me was like, especially with obviously the type of dogs that we all deal with, um, this was super helpful because the dogs were much more apt to start searching as soon as they stepped off the board. They were able, like you said, to collect themselves while they were sitting there not good to overload and then, you know, go right to work. So will that work on every dog? I'm sure not. I'm sure there's gonna be some dogs who might even look at the place board and load. Uh, you know, I haven't yeah. come across that yet, but doesn't mean it won't happen. So for those that do find a dog that kind of uses that as an antecedent to get overexcited, then obviously you would have to change that. But I think for a lot of dogs, it prove to be helpful. And, uh, I'm sure as we all start using it and stealing this idea even further, we'll, we'll find out what bugs are there and what things, uh, or what type of dogs it works really well with. What's something else that you've, uh, you've done or you've seen in some place that you came back and you go, yep, I'm going to use that. And it's been a really big, uh, factor for you as a detection dog trainer. Hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, lots for sure. There's tons, you know, I, and I think I've got stacks and stacks uh, of notebooks where I've stole ideas, and I don't think I've ever really had a um, had an had an original one. Learning to, you know, over the years, you know, offline the handler independence piece, um, you know, and camera systems. Of course, mm-hmm. we use a lot of camera systems, and you know, with the dogs, um, a big one for me is helped was. Um, you know, more expensive or inexpensive way. If you look at, you know, a canine storm camera or whatever, which, which are obviously my, my favorite, but are 
very expensive for a detection perspective from training, um, buying baby cameras and monitors. Yeah. Um, they're fairly inexpensive and you can set, they're portable. You can bring them with you. One monitor you can put out four baby cameras in a room and watch the dog search. And if you're really trying to work on the independent piece or have, you know, really it's then becomes a fully double blind. The dog is completely by himself and he can get paid and rewarded um, with nobody in the room. And I think those things are good. And I'm sure I saw somebody use a baby camera and I just don't remember where, but um, <laughs> little things like that have been, have been very beneficial for us. Really any kind of tricks to, um, make the dogs be independent on 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 their own where uh, you know i really like foundationally and then of course like everything i've had the problem where i've made dogs so independent um that they're not prepared to take uh any direction and search search patterns from their handlers and um and then learn from that and said okay we like everything we can't keep swinging the pendulum and there's little middle ground here you need to be independent on your own but in the same token if i tell you to search somewhere then um you need to do that and you need to tolerate me in your face just as much as Mm -hmm. i need you to search without having any idea where i am so no that's a huge one because uh just like you said there's there was that uh movement let's say that went from in the beginning when people like you and i started there was heavy handler direction lots of presentations lots of detailing telling the dog where to go all that kind of stuff and then we went in more recent years and it became a lot more about uh, letting the dog be super independent and that was helpful but then it went almost too far where the dog worked so independently it had a hard time being collaborative again and it's nice to see that as an industry, we are bringing ourselves back a little bit to the middle where it should be, where the dog can work independently as it needs to, but then also be collaborative and follow direction from the handler as it needs to. And, you know, that actually brings up another good question I have is what is something or what are some things that you've seen that we struggle with in detection that's not necessarily stuck to one side or the other, but just a comment, because we all share the same problems. What is something that you've seen that, uh, you know, we still run into from time to time as a struggle uh, within the detection dog community? Um, I think the, the challenges are, are uh, kind of always in the same categories. You know, we have struggles when it relates to specifically uh, the target order and then kind of the chemistry and what the dog is learning and the, the ability to um, then approximate that order, generalize that order to something that's close enough is is one one challenge. And I think that in many cases can be our biggest challenge depending upon um, depending upon the profile you're you're at. And then the other one is is sometimes losing context of what it is that you're doing and, and searching offline is an example. And I think, you know, post nine 11, you know, and, you know, and, and managing dogs into theaters and changed a lot for detection, particularly because of the explosive side. And I think a lot of things that maybe made sense for a downrange explosive detection dog, um, don't always make sense for an explosive dog. That's just going to do VIP sweeps. And, and, and some of it doesn't make sense for a dog that's going to do roadside narcotic searches. And so I think sometimes 
social media as well as maybe fed into that, like the context uh, of some training avenues, the kind of the why behind it, I think is still, is still a, an underpinning where we see things um, and we see what people are doing and, and maybe not always understanding the why or how that feeds to an operational, an operational outcome and making sure that what we're doing in training leads to, you know, effective operational employment. Yeah, no, you bring up a, a really good point, which is there's a lot of things that we try to, as an industry, go, hey, be on this side or be on that side. And I was talking about that on a, you know, another more re- you know recent podcast where, you know, we got into you know, the discussion of like it's it's always this or it's always that, and one we have to consider what the job is for the dog. So there's a lot of different things uh, that dogs deal with. Um, that are unique to that discipline that may not lend itself well to the other discipline. And obviously, you know, since a lot of things derive from the military law enforcement background, bomb and drugs, things kind of get overlapped. And we think, well, it, it's a detection dog. It should do this no matter what. And there are parts of that that are true, but it's not a, a general statement because just like you said, narcotics dogs have to do things differently than explosive dogs and explosive dogs have a lot more um, unique things because you know it obviously can bite back in a sense the what we're looking for can kill you um, whereas the narcotic side of things it could be something super small that we're looking for and even within you know we're training some dogs for some uh, uh, custody or prison programs and even the narcotics dogs within those, disciplines are very different types of narcotics dogs as opposed to your you know standard police officer that works the road or maybe even an interdiction unit so just within a discipline sometimes there's very unique special things that need to be considered uh, for the training so you know that's a good one uh, kind of the people to kind of sit back sometimes and go it's not always and it's not never you know there's some of that you need to follow like, well, what works? And people are starting to say this a whole lot more now. It's about the dog in front of you. In this case, it's also about the mission you have and what's your deployment and, and understanding that. Um, so, you know, kind of bringing it back around, what's something in the explosives world that you've seen change a lot uh, as far as being a bomb dog handler from when you started to uh, where we're at now? Um you know, just in that, let's just say this past 15 or so years. I think, um, so probably the biggest one that I've seen in the explosive world would be, um, uh, obviously marked behavior marking B is a, is a big one. And however it is that you, however it is that you choose to do that. And then, um, paying, paying away from source. I think those are the two kind of biggest changes I'm like you, a very, uh, you know, a very big fan of marked behavior. And I had to mostly learn it on my own and struggle at a time as did you where, mm-hmm. um, you know, in 2009, 2010, walking around with a clicker, uh, <laughs> uh, in the police dog world. Was yeah, it was a was, sin. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, it was a pretty good way to get kicked out of places. And, and then, you know, being indirectly, cause I, like like you, like all of us, we started with with throwing a ball at source or whatever, and doing the magic trick and all that type of stuff. And um, and then as as I, I think I think like many things, 
you know, war is good for some stuff in terms mm-hmm. of developmental things and except, you know, changing the way we do things in, in all and many facets, but certainly with, you know, with the most recent conflicts where canine was a big part of it, we saw some big changes. And, and I think that fed a lot to, you know, paying away from source and those sorts of things. When you look at something as simple as imprinting, trying or imprint, you're trying to condition a dog to an order, um, whatever you choose, however you choose to define that, um, making an order meaningful and um, the dog, you know, like with HMEs and, and sensitive uh, HMEs where you, you can't even actually, tr- you can't actually condition that order for the dog. If you, mm-hmm. if it's a necessity for you to pay at source, cause yeah. you're, you're, you know, you're going to, you're going to make something high order if you start bouncing. So something as rudimentary as that, it, it forces, it forces some changes. And, and like we were talking about earlier, I think in that vein, we saw a lot of, I'm, a, I massively train away from source mostly because most of the detection dogs they do are explosive, but, but I, I also always pay at source. Mm -hmm. I, um, I think that there's most dogs, I start most things directly and move to indirect and, and, uh, pay at source, pay away from source. But for a while, when everybody was paying away from source, there was a big explosive piece, which on rope clearance and those sorts of things as you know we want to be able to pay and mark and have a dog come back a good distance away well that doesn't necessarily mean if you have a drug dog that you're going to work on the side of the road that you need to employ the same training techniques where it's going to have a dog that will recall from 100 meters off an explosive height so sure uh, those changes and then making sure they're contextually or mission relevant is super important so who was probably your like what drew your inspirations to go into using the condition reinforcer marker training. Uh, where were you looking at that and, and what drove you that direction? So the, for me, the, there was a few driving factors. One was I was really, um, sick of, I knew that operationally I couldn't continue to pitch balls yeah. <laughs> and hit dogs with balls or bounce yeah. them off of, off of things. So that was, um, that was a big factor. Um, I knew enough that, and look, I came from the generation when you went through, as you, I'm sure, you know, go through a basic dog handler course and I don't, I wouldn't have been able to tell you the four quadrants of operant conditioning, sure, conditioning yeah. 25 years ago. There's yeah. no way that I, I could have. And now I preach them like they're yeah. gospel, but, um, so bouncing the dog, you know, bouncing the ball off the dog, bouncing it off potential IED threats, obviously was a, a big limiting factor. I remember, um, you know, hearing about variable reinforcement many, many years ago and thinking that it was nonsense, like going, you're crazy. If you don't pay a dog every time <laughs> they find an odor, they're never going to want to go back to it. But what I also knew in my P brain or believed in my P brain was I really didn't want to continue to separate training events for a dog from, from, from real world events. And, and one of the, one of the best ways I think to help a dog learn um, the difference between training and reality is to only reinforce training and never reinforce, um, never reinforce reality. And I think you can definitely teach a dog pretty quickly that you get paid in training and you never get paid in real life. So you stop, they, they stop performing operationally. And one of my first approaches to that was, um, just to have a very, 
variable reinforcement schedule so that um, I could have a dog pay him. I wanted to pay him away from source operationally. And if I, I, if, if I did, if there was a time where I didn't end up reinforcing him operationally and maybe the situation on the ground just determined that, that it wasn't safe to do so, or I couldn't do so, that it wasn't a learning experience for the dog that real life was different um, than training. So, so I started playing with variable reinforcement and lo and behold, um, what they said in all the books was true, was true. And uh, me being the idiot was wrong, but I'm like, wow, this really does work. But I never, I didn't try it because, you know, because of what, because, um, you know, a psychologist or a behaviorist told me that you should do variable reinforcement because quite frankly, I didn't believe them. I did it for other reasons and then realized how, what an idiot I was, you know, and just started to make some changes like that. So it was, it was always the operational output that, 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 that drove the changes that I, that I wanted to make. No. And and you, you, you know, there were some good things you brought up there too, which was, you know, there was things that we believed and uh, there's still various, you know, pretty strong beliefs in the dog world that counter what, data and science has shown us in certain circles, these things live on. Uh, in other circles, the acceptance of the data and the science has become more uh, readily accepted. And um, in, in like you, I started off my career very doubtful. Okay, what are people in a lab coat working in a laboratory going to show me those conditions don't match anything uh, that I do or how I do it? And then, you know, kind of falling into that world, uh, I started seeing things and tinkering on my own, just like you mentioned, that made a big difference for me too, because then all of a sudden when I was trying some of those things I was reading about, such as variable reward schedules, uh, using condition reinforcers, those things, I was like, okay, yep, that did make it a, a better difference than what I've been doing. And, uh, And that kind of did lead, you know, for me down the path to start following more of those individuals in science in in that uh, variable aspect between training and reality, the reward schedules in either or. Um, You know, Nathan Hall, Dr. Nathan Hall was just here and he has a whole study going on about that specifically and shared a lot of the studies that are one of the newer studies that was out recently about that, too. And man. It's so true that it was amazing to see the data of a group of dogs that when they never got reinforcement in a certain search area, they never found anything. So there was no odor, therefore, no reinforcement, which, you know, the dog said, okay, after a time, there's nothing over here that's reinforcing or why I should work. You know, his version is the uh, Coke machine's broken. And uh, uh, when they did put a target odor into that space, the dogs from a certain group, uh, control group that they had did not hit the odor, even though they were, you know, going through the motions and showing that they were searching, but they weren't, but they weren't because they had gone there so many times and never found anything. Uh, like he shows in his little graph there, it was like, you know, what's the chain of events? Well, the dog searches, dog locates odor, receives reinforcement. Well, when they go to a certain area and there's nothing to be found, therefore no reinforcement after enough time, it's like extinction training, obviously. The dog goes, this is never a productive area, so why am I going to do anything here? And that was super helpful, and it, and it really kind of hit home for a lot of handlers because he showed when they were in training, and all they did in training was introduce 
you know, one group of dogs was in their training area, they didn't always find something in that training area versus group A that always found something in there. And just by having that group that realized that not every search yielded a find when they went into that search area that was constantly a no find, when they did finally put odor there, the dogs that had been a intermittent, you know, find ratio in the, in the primary search area found the odor in the group that never found or that always had reinforcement or found something in training and never had it in the other area also didn't find it when they put the odor there. So that was a uh, eye-opening experience for a lot of people to realize the importance of doing those all clear searches in your training. You know, incorporate that, not just blank areas, but all clear areas. Yeah, no, absolutely. The whole, the all clear area is an incredibly important part of it. And, you know, for sure, it speaks to the importance of context and expectation and, and building a resistance to um, extinction and, and, and understanding that there's sometimes we're just going to pay you for searching. And, uh, and I'm, I'm okay mm-hmm. with that. And those mm-hmm. 20 years ago, I like, there's no way. Oh, I agree. Would have been able to convince me to, if I search an area, there was nothing there that I was still going to reinforce my dog. However, that is with food or ball or praise or yeah. whatever, but, um, there is, he didn't find anything there for there's no reinforcement and that yeah for sure 20 20 plus years ago there's no way i would just pay a dog for the act of searching while he just searched well that's yeah actually what we want him to do um so maybe we should tell him it's a pretty good thing to keep doing <laughs> and that was uh dr hall's point was we were fundamentally looking at detection in a approach that may not be the most ideal which is you know, like his question was, why do we have to put odor out all the time? Why is odor always present? What was the thought process behind the handlers and trainers as to why they were always, you know, why did the training area have to have training odor? And the most common answer was, well, I want my dog to make sure it knows odor. And of course, they're able to show you that the in many cases, handlers have experienced this where dogs don't forget it. They can run a dog two, five, whatever years later, and that dog hits the odor. And most times when you talk to those handlers, the dog did better with that huge gap of time than it did when it was training all the time. So that was, you know, an eye-opening effect. But then, like he said, is that we have to go at it from the search point of view, making it about searching. You know, obviously, this is a phase of training. So, you know, backing up, you're still in the beginning, do the normal stuff that you do. But once you reach your, you know, I, I refer to it for me in my process, I had a label steps now to make it easier for people to relate to. Um, but let's say, and I would call it my step three to five, when we're starting to search real stuff, that there is the uh, opportunity of an all clear. And I introduced even earlier than that, but it gets more brought into play as it progresses. But in any case, the dog realizes it's reinforcing to do its job in search and to do the correct thing, which is tell me there's nothing here by not responding. And doing that is also reinforcing. And there, in there is obviously, as we both know, creates lots of debates. You know, well, what are you really reinforcing for? How does a dog know it got reinforced for search? And at what point do I do it? Do I do it while it was searching? Do I leave the area? You know, all this kind of stuff. So I'll bring, I'll toss that question to you. What would you say to those that ask that question? What do I do? How do I, how do I clearly let my dog know that 
the searching was what I'm reinforcing and the correct response of no response. Um, so, so good. I'll say that, uh, ultimately like many things, I'm not sure I can tell you what I've tried and played with and, but I don't speak dog. So most of what we're doing <laughs> is a guess yeah. at best, you know? So it's, and, and the notion of understanding that this is, in many cases about searching and not finding and being able to, to manage that. And, and I, I, on the tracking side, I relate a lot of tracking to detection because I think from a training perspective, they're very much the same. And my tracking training got better when I realized that I needed to have systems that really reinforce tracking and not about finding someone or something at the end. And when tracking becomes about tracking and not about, finding at the end then the tracking piece gets better when we're just training specifics of tracking yeah. of course the just like detection if you mention that then people can be up in arms and the craziness of how can you teach dogs to track without a person at the end and all these other th- <laughs> all these other things and um so for me with uh on the detection the detection piece where i want to try to reinforce um just the searching behavior I think it's important to caveat that I like to have a very clear communication system for a dog. I want a dog to understand, like most people, what you just did is good, good and the behavior, what you're doing is great, keep doing it. I want to try something else. And that was incorrect. And it, and it was that was a you chose uh, the incorrect choice. And then the you know, be able to communicate the follow on consequences is why, why they're there. So, um, in detection, uh, throughout detection, while the dog is searching, I quite regularly will mark that verbally. And for my dog, I just, I mark it with a good. And generally it's a tactile. Um, I will pet him while he's, while he continues to search. And, um, at the, I pay if I'm leaving a search area is generally where I pay and I release on a different release than I do Mm -hmm. if it was a target order. So Mm -hmm. I use the word break, um, and a a whistle, uh, and then a mark. I use, obviously I use a clicker a lot as well, particularly in the, in the beginning, but I try to get rid of the clicker and go to a whistle and Mm -hmm. verbal for operational work. Um, and then I'll release them to, uh, a good, um, which is kind of a um, uh, stand behavior, but I, I mark, I, I release that to a toy or a jute or whatever at once I'm outside of the search area. So I've found that that's helped a lot, um, whether it's correct or not. I, I don't know. My dogs have shown me that, that they think that it's correct. So that I kind of go, I kind of go off of, I kind of go off of that. I worried, worried uh, about using the same marker. So for example, if I had a dog go in, find odor, condition, final response, and then release with a whistle. Um, I, I don't release with the, with the whistle, um, for search behavior. Um, just because I, I want to try to avoid marking potentially if he was smelling something, that's my, the kind of the, the piece that I worry about that if he's smelling or actively sniffing something, I don't want to mark whatever it was that Mm -hmm. he was inhaling at Mm -hmm. that time the same way I would a target order. So I try to just make sure he's not, he's free of that. Um, and I use a different marker than I would for indicating a target order. Um, and it seems to have worked, worked well, but that doesn't mean that's the correct way. It's just a way of doing it. 
Yeah, no, and it's funny because obviously you and I haven't talked about this, but I do nearly the exact same thing. So for me and what I share with people I train with is uh, once we step out of the area is where we have our rewarding event. I'll steal what uh, Michael Ellis uses. And that is reinforcing. It releases the dog. It has chemicals in the dog's brain that are pleasurable and realizes that was a fun thing to do. And like you said, I won't use my typical condition reinforcer marker that I've been using in detection when the dog is at odor, but I still create, once I leave whatever my search space is, uh, the signal that we're playing and it's fun and you did a great job and this was really good. It's not just go throw you back in the car, which is what we all used to do, um, which is you do this really good search and I'm going to throw you back in the car. <laughs> you know, there's yeah, for sure. And okay. that's, you know, can take away a lot from a dog, you know, and uh, I want my dog to really want to go hunt and go search and, uh, that, like you said, in itself is the pleasurable part, the part that's really reinforcing. And then the cherry on top, of course, is going to be if they happen to find something, because then you see other things happen in the dog, uh, as many of us refer to as the conditioned emotional response in the dog. Ooh, there's that thing I'm looking for. Not just a thing, it's this thing. And that elicits a totally different behavior and response in the dog. It's in, as many can, re, you know, uh, I want always people to describe that behavior particularly when they go through training because that looks different than something of interest. And yep, that's absolutely. And that's where a lot of people struggle is they read things that are interesting to the dog because a dog can get excited about something that's interesting, but it's not at the same emotional level as that target odor that's had a strong reinforcement history to it. And like you said, the big thing is the clarity that we started with really enhances that emotional spot later on in that dog when it comes across that target odor. And the fact that it doesn't come across that target odor all the time. You know, it, it has a more profound effect when they find it, you know, intermittently. You know, so if they always come out and you go to the same search area or the same three or four search areas you have, they know they expect to find something there. It's when you go to that different area and all of a sudden randomly sometimes there's odor there or um, you've gone to, let's say you've gone to a new area and you've searched it, but you don't put anything out target wise. But then you come back to it, you know, a week or two later or three weeks later, whatever it is, and you happen to have an odor there this time. Man, just that ability to read that dog when it hits that odor is very distinguishable, which is, I think, super helpful for a lot of handlers to go through. Yeah, oh, absolutely. That the the predictable variability, you know, predictably unpredictable, and yep. that's for sure. It just brings um, it brings them alive. And you talked about rewarding after the search, and and um, actually, Jerry just did a pretty good talk the other day about. I mean, we all talk about Pavlov always being mm -hmm. on your shoulder and the, you know, classically conditioning things, but, but not forgetting that the emotive piece that we're, you know, like it's, that we're classically conditioning and understanding the, which, which for sure 20 years ago would be a hard conversation to have in our worlds and stuff and say, no, like the dog needs to feel good about what he's doing. And, um, and, you know, there's definitely a piece to that where we have to, 
you know, paying for the search, understand, letting them feel good about the searching piece and classically conditioning emotion to an event. Um, we're doing it anyway. So mm-hmm. if you do it with intent, then you can, you can try to condition the correct emotion. And then searching is always a really fun thing for them. And it, searching is fun and not just finding is fun, but the yeah. whole, the whole exercise is, is fun. We would always reinforce every phase and every step of an obedience routine, or we should anyway, to, if you want to make it reliable and uh, have enthusiasm. Um, and I think the same is for detection, reinforcing those things, having the ability to communicate so that you can capture. And, you know, I, I often talk about just paying odor and I don't mean the, you know, the, the you know, the odor pays piece for sure. But um, for a long time, I, I just say, just pay the odor, just pay the odor. So the mm-hmm. dog comes in, head snaps, mm-hmm. takes a draw. Mm-hmm. You, okay, that's, I don't, you don't, you don't need to wait. Don't just Correct. mark that and pay it. And yep. uh, 80% of the time, and that's what I pay without the final response. Yep. I wait for a final response very, very few percentage of the time, just because I continually want to reinforce that it's the odor that matters yep. and it's not the sit that matters. You know, you need to search and you need to find, um, you know, we need to find and fix. And Oh yeah. A hundred percent. Absolutely. No. And, you know, I'll add another layer onto this, which is, the relationship between the handler and dog. And it's more than just somebody you throw into the car and then you take home and throw into the kennel. It's establishing and building that strong bond and relationship with your dog really has benefits into your deployment and how you work your dog. And you know this just like I do, from the military aspect, obviously military keeps dogs kenneled many times because they're not they're, they're property of whatever military entity. So there's a liability issue. They can't just let these dogs go home with handlers all the time and so on and so forth. And the, due to the changeover in, in military personnel at locations, there's a reason for why they do that. But when teams deploy and they're deployed, they're living with their dogs a whole lot more. And every military handler I know will easily tell you how much better they were with their dog during deployment than prior to deployments when they just worked a dog at the kennels that was assigned to them. Um, and, And that relationship pays big dividends when you're operational. And if there's anything you want to add to that and what you've seen from your perspective. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And it would be another area where, um, I sort of pendulumed a bit through, through my training. And when we first started relationships and, and those sorts of things were very, were taught and were very important. And then I think I, I saw where relationships and by extension emotion created a lot of problems, particularly in the detection world where there was, um, not clear clear communication and not a separation between communication and emotion that I started teaching people to be very, very mechanical in everything that they did. But the follow on was that exactly what you're saying. You could only take, take that so so far. So I've sort of settled back into the, into the middle and I'll continue to make mistakes as I go along. But (laughs) uh, with new handlers, for sure, I start very mechanical 
um, very deliberate, very communication is very black and white. Um, marking communication is clear. Marking is very clear reinforcement for most things. I pretty heavily food in the beginning, um, and paying with food, the problem with food, and mm-hmm. I use a lot of it is that it's, you, you lose engagement and, um, it's hard, not, you don't, you don't lose it, but it's, it's certainly not as easy to be engaging, but that's fine for me in initial training because I don't want new handlers injecting too much emotion, too much additional stuff because it just clouds what we're trying to communicate. But I, I take a deliberate transition from that to, okay, we're now good with this. Now we need engagement and we need relationship. And, and once I take, you know, they take that step into that world where they spend a lot of time together, a lot of, a lot of engagement in the training, a lot of engagement outside, build a relationship. That's what allows the training to, and the performance gets, I agree with you, hold it's, it gets exponentially, exponentially better. But if we have too much relationship and not enough mechanics and communication, then it's a disaster. And if we have all mechanics and clear communication, uh, it can be a problematic too. And uh, having those two things come together, I think, is probably the sweet spot. Yeah, no. And, and you, again, this is why we get along so well. You know, I use food, especially like you just talked about in the beginning, when we are building these behaviors where I don't want overstimulation, I don't want the dog so worked up that it's, it's having a hard time processing what I what I want or what we expect, because I've stimulated it too much with this toy, or even just in some dogs, the presence of the toy itself is just too much let alone many handlers struggle to even get the toy back and that competitive aspect between dog and handler, you're almost viewed by the dog as an adversary for the toy where if we build our foundation, teach with the food where we can get more reps, more reps in a clearer state of mind. And when for me and what I do is my last rep and whatever I'm teaching in detection ends with the toy that last rep is like the jackpot and that's the toy but then it allows me to also continue to build these skills that i need and then eventually it transitions to where i would say a majority of the time i will be using my reward to be a toy but every now and then i still throw in the food just because the more you know your dog you know certain things may throw it over the top and depending on certain situations i may not want them in that arousal level but no it's uh it's an excellent point because a lot of times back to that part we talked about earlier it's either one way or the other there was that culture that existed in our industry that use of not only clicker and and condition reinforcement was a bad thing but so was the use of food if your dog needed food you'd have a dog that was too weak or if you needed or if you used food in training, the dog would then seek food out in, uh, in deployment searches, which is my question is, well, why doesn't your dog seek the toy out too? Then <laughs> you know, there's, there's plenty <laughs> yeah. of things that have a ball or a, these days Kong or tennis ball or what have you. Those things are present in a lot of real world environments. So you can't have the argument one way and not have it the other, you know, in the sense of that. And, and I know where they're going with it is, well, there's food more prevalent and blah, blah, blah. But um, it, it's all about the clarity back to what we said earlier and, and what you teach teach. So, you know, starting off with those that are listening, you you know, the use of food just helps clarity, keeps motivation. But if you see the dog maybe dropping in motivation a little bit, 
interject the toy. The fact that there's some randomness at times is helpful. You know, and, and I'll give some people, uh, you know, a, a pro tip here is once you do introduce the toy into the session, you're probably not going to go back to the food depending on the dog. Uh, in most cases, once that toy, that high level reinforcer comes into play, the other ones are, you know, it's like me giving you a hundred bucks and then all of a sudden going, here's a dollar. You're like, screw you, give me the hundred dollars again, you know? So for some of the dogs, they need that. Uh, uh, once you introduce it, it's hard to go back in that session. Doesn't mean your subsequent session, you can't start off again with your your food, which is the, goes back to that um, thing we talked about before on this podcast is the hierarchy of reward. Paul Bunker uh, shares it in his book. Uh, I've shared it. Others have shared it. And knowing the hierarchy of reward, both in food and with your dog, is super important. And that's another very helpful thing uh, that helps manage your training and set your training protocols up for the most success you could possibly have. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And each dog is going to be a little bit different. Uh, their age is going to be a little bit different. You know, they're going to change as they get older. And I think, you know, most of the dogs we're dealing with a lot of time, they're definitely going to, they could happily go days without eating if you just continue to let them play with a con ball. Um, so mm-hmm. managing that, I try my best to have dogs understand that, um, uh, to accept a range through that hierarchy. And but of course, some dogs, it's just not going to happen, but yeah. I definitely want them to either take a ball or a food, depending upon what they get and understand that what it is, 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 um, is what it is. But yeah, food was definitely a big, that was probably, that might've been harder to push actually than using mark behavior in some yeah. cases because absolutely the use of food was for dogs that had no drive. There yeah. was, that was not even, it was like basically that had been decreed by God. Yeah. Like it was the, <laughs> the 11th commandment or something that, that, yeah, no, actually you only use food for dogs without drive. And I'm like, well, I, my dogs that have crazy drive, drive food really helps them a lot because we can we can get way more done i use food a lot i use most of our handlers carry small food pouches operationally as well you know just deploying to to containment positions moving to Mm -hmm. thresholds for human searches and all that sort of stuff you know it allows us to reinforce the dogs operationally um by just marking a behavior giving a piece of food you can keep healing up to a threshold while you're doing that in the real world and, uh, you know, we don't have to worry about the dog spitting a ball if mm-hmm. you have to send them to apprehend somebody or whatever mm-hmm. else. So there's a lot of, but, and a lot of dogs that were never trained with food, I suspect if you put a bucket of, sent them into a room offline and just threw some Kentucky fried chicken on the floor, <laughs> I think they might go for a, a yeah, wing or two yeah, if, they could, if they were offline. <laughs> there's a pretty good chance. So I don't, I'm not sure that training with food or not training with food doesn't mean that a dog's exactly the opportunity, not going to dive into a little KFC. No, we all know dogs are opportunistic, especially with something that they really want. So, you know, it doesn't matter which way it is. It's obviously knowing and understanding your dog and, and, you know, setting up yourself for success when you deploy and do your things. So I wanted to ask you too, um, I'll, I'll hit you with obviously the bomb one first. What's a, uh, an experience or it c- could be you as a handler or even something, you know, from a unit you've worked with where you can talk about a deployment that really paid off and talk about, you know, what had happened and, and some of the reasons why it, w- it worked the way it did and the success it had. 
So I can, maybe I'll talk, talk about failure and then move towards yeah, success. Yeah. So, you know, initially I think in, in, in most of my detection, you know, almost all of it is explosive, uh, is explosive base. But, you know, prior to the war starting and dogs starting to deploy, I think, I think it was mostly the same in the U.S. as well. We would train on, on, on odors, something, for example, like ANFO, you know, so ammonium nitrate and fuel oil, diesel fuel, whatever, train a dog on that. And that's how I was taught. You train a dog on that. If he sits on that in a box, and then if you just walk him around diesel trucks, if he doesn't sit on the diesel truck, or if he goes to sit on the diesel truck, you just pull him off with the leash. Then that, then we've proofed him off diesel fuel and away we go. We're good to go. There's no, they've learned all ammonium nitrate based products. And then, and then you'd, take that training approach and try to deploy in a place where there's lots of ammonium based, um, ammonium nitrate based products. And you go, wow, like none of this is working. <laughs> um, and so I had to try to figure stuff out and I separated fuels from oxidizer. And back then there wasn't a lot of, a lot of resources around and tried to play with, I actually separated the um, oxidizers and fuels and um, just messing around on my own in different places and then i remember having some success and uh and then lucia's article came out on the generalization uh, um of blended mixtures Mm -hmm. and then of course lauren was shortly thereafter after with the mod box and i'm like okay okay so this i'm like i don't know why this isn't working (laughs) why i'm having trouble and this other stuff is working and then that was really probably more than the behavior stuff the chemistry side was a much easier transition but i i remember when those papers came out and they really helped my brain like lucia's first paper was very important to me lauren's paper on mm-hmm. on binary like those were very important for me in terms of uh development and then over the years being able to transition that dealing with some amazing chemists in canada that helped us work through some of these things and and taking that to rolling forward um to some operational calls that I had and, and then some folks that I worked with or trained with where, where we were able to, you know, kind of have the totality of, I don't want to get too many but the totality of, of some of the training where dogs are able to work independently offline, mm-hmm. searching for HMEs that were, that were either, you know, partially in a partial fabrication phase to, to, you know, to, um, to a complete phase and a couple incidents where we were able to have, you know, one of the guys that I work with, you know, a, a bad guy terrorist that ended up, you know, you're just able to get some standoff um, and find, find target odors and blended HMEs and synthesized HMEs that, that, that we never would have been able to find before. And not because the dogs didn't have the capacity, but from a, had we as a community not really started to take a leap forward and, and engage with those scientists mm-hmm. on the chemistry side, there's no chance that, um, you know, the items that, that I have found people that I've trained have found, um, you know, in recent years, I, I never, I never would have been able to do that yeah. 20 years ago, like not even close. And, um, uh, and nor would a lot of the people, you know, most people that I would have known at the time and, and by engaging, taking those training techniques and 
really being able to make things safer where we can use dogs for what they, where they can give us standoff um, and provide, which makes things, slows things down and safer for everybody. All the things that make a dog great, I think are important. And it's very important that we continue in the dog world to make sure that our training reflects what the operations are. Yes, And it's okay to say that I'm going to train on boxes and then on a six foot leash, I'm going to go search this room. And if, if that's really what you're going, you think you're going to be using that dog for, that's great. Mm-hmm. Um, but my experience in real life, explosive calls, yes, everyone has to do VIP sleeps and everything else. And, but when it, when it really matters and not that those don't matter, but when it really matters, you better be prepared to do, do what you need to do. And we certainly see, you know, I've spent massive, many, many years working on tactical integration and CQB with dogs and everything else at a, I think at a pretty high level, but, um, I'd like to see more of that role into understanding that canine, an explosive detection dog is, is an operational resource of, 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 part of a larger explosive disposal mm-hmm. operation mm-hmm. and not, you know, and often they're kind of done separately. They get together. Oh, can the bomb guys give us some hides and we'll search for those or we'll go search a small room. But what does that really look like operationally where we're saying, okay, you know, if we talk about integrating dogs into a tack team, into a stack and doing all those sorts of things, well, that carry over into what an actual explosive call looks like where you're going to have robots and bomb techs and we're going to have, measured approaches and how do we, who searches when and where, and what's the sequence. And can I actually do what they're going to ask me to do? Because if I've done everything on a six foot leash, um, am I able to do what is going to be needed of me on the day when it doesn't necessarily make sense to be four feet away from a possible IED. So I think that some of the operational lessons learned have done a, a good, a better job of helping me get, you know, better slowly, um, at, preparing on for real life as opposed to maybe validation testing. Yeah, no, and you bring up a very important distinction. There's a couple of things there I want to circle back on, which was the importance of there's the odor confirmation stage, which is like you just brought up your odor recognition testing, doing your foundationals and working on certain skills within that phase of training. But that by no means means you're ready for your deployment side of things. And you really have to spend also in a a significant amount of time doing what you're going to do operationally, testing your limits. Can I send my dog out so many feet or yards or whatever meters to a potential target? Um, Do I have control? Back to your mixtures aspect. Is my dog proficient at identifying this chemical with these other non-target chemicals present. Uh, the importance of understanding, you know, there's there's always going to be the great debate, you know, in our industry for a while uh, in regards to synthetics versus uh, real. And every chemist I've ever talked to says, yeah, there can be at some point synthetics that will be very valuable and can be used. Right now, are we there yet? There's a lot of debate on that and a lot of different things that come up from that. So, circling to the point being, well, what are we looking for? We're looking for, in this case, like you said, an IED. Well, what's what's made of the IED? Well, it has this actual target explosive material 
And it will probably have these other things in Dr. Hall, again, bringing him back in the picture too, was he does a great little image. He shows ammonium nitrate, sugar, and baking soda as one of the explosive devices. And he said, now, if I take out the ammonium nitrate, I can bake cookies because <laughs> what I have left is sugar and baking soda, right? So yeah. the point being was you he was saying is you have to teach the dog you're looking for this odor picture, but if this other odor picture is present minus this target, it's not relevant. If this target is present minus the non-targets, it's relevant. And getting the dogs proficient in all those combinations, which is not always easy because of all the things that, depending on the type of uh, detection work you do, there could be a lot of things. And, you know, I look at, let's say, arson dogs. Arson dogs, man, talk about the amount of proofing you have to do with burning all different types of materials, but only certain ones with the accelerant are the ones that are important. Imagine just, you know, the smell of burning plastic and how that smells or burning of a wood floor that may have a varnish on it, but that's not what we're looking for, you know? So these different disciplines, just the proofing aspect and the dog understanding the mixtures that its nose faces is where it's important. And we've made a lot of assumptions about uh, dogs and mixtures and they can smell these things. And we're starting to see that, yes, there's some truth to that, but there's also, you can't just say the beef stew theory anymore. You can't just say, oh, it smells all these things and that's what it's going to do it because it doesn't smell them equally and it doesn't smell all of them. And to say that the dogs are better at smelling everything than we are, turns out not to be correct either. There's some things that we actually smell better than a dog can smell. And that wasn't, that's never brought up. We, we just make these blanket statements. Oh, the dog's ability to smell is 300 million times better than a human. Well, except for this chemical where the dog can't smell it, but the human can, you know? So how did, so yeah, there's a lot of things that we pass along to each other throughout the industry for so many years that, like you said, becomes part of the Bible. And we just say, it is it. This is, it, it was spoken by my trainer and it's gospel at this point until, all of a sudden, somebody like these doctors, Lucia, Nathan, Paola, Lauren, come in, or Dr. Adeshon, then go, uh, let me show you something that's a little bit different in it. In it, Then we have to sometimes, that's where we got to check ourselves and say, okay, I have to be willing to look at this a, in a, uh, a different way than I have before. And maybe this information is valuable. And maybe my experience that I have is just anecdotal and it's been set up for my way to, because that's all I knew how to do. So I always set it up this way. And uh, all of a sudden now when someone comes in and makes one little change, all of a sudden the wheels fall off. And we've seen that in training too. We've seen where we go to train with somebody different and our dogs all of a sudden aren't hitting the training aids that they have or the type of mixture of whatever they have. So no, it's, it's super important to, to get all that clarity in the dog and to make sure as we are prepare ourselves operationally that we get the dog into as many different things. So that way, like you said earlier too, I want the failure, whether you're a nose work person or you're a operational explosive dog handler, Let's set up training so that way if we have a failure, it happens here in training with us. And it's the safe place to have failure because we can learn from it and we can apply these lessons and then change a training protocol and enhance on something or do a corrective action so we get better. But 
we can't let our, our egos or our uh, feelings kind of get in that way. We, we can look at things from a different perspective and see the positive in that and go, okay, this is going to help make us better uh, versus just kind of doing the stuff that we just do it because we're checking a list on a training book kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. I mean, culturally, um, we're not, I don't think culturally people aren't great at just saying, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And that's a, that's a problem. You know, we've testified to a lot of things. I like the stew theory. I, I mean, the stew theory is probably one of the greatest, one of the things that angers me the most a little bit where I look <laughs> at all the mistakes that I've made and oh, yeah, myself people, just based on the belief of this, of this. And I'm not saying that if there's stew cooking on the pot, that the dog can't smell the onions in there. I, but I just don't know how, you know, that that's what the dog is smelling at that, <laughs> exactly. at that particular time. And I just, and you know, we've made training aid kits and training approaches and every, and testified in court and mm-hmm. based on this stew theory that it's like, I don't even know who stew is or whatever. Like, I mean, I, yeah. like, how did this, <laughs> you know, we just repeated a lot of this stuff over and over again and, and people die on the sword over it. And oh, I'm yeah. like, holy smokes like we don't speak dog and dogs don't speak human and and, and that dog's not your child no. um like it's it's okay for your, your dog to make mistakes in fact we have to and that's how we learn and how we get better and we just have to just go easy it's always perfect um no one's got this figured out yet and we only think maybe think we have something figured out and and who really knows because in 10 years from now we if we're still alive, we should be looking back on, man, I know, right? 2022, <laughs> we were totally screwed up. Like, no, right. I can't believe we thought that. I can't believe I told Cam that was a good idea. <laughs> like, that's what we should be looking back at, at least some of it. Anyway. Yeah. Um, and if you're not, that's actually the bigger problem. If you're not prepared, I start all classes by saying, um, what I know is that what I'm talking about today is wrong. I just don't know it yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's correct. And based on all the information that I have, which is not all of the information um, that, I, that I think it's correct. Um, but probably in a few years or a few months um, or a lot of years, we'll look back and go, man, Brad's an idiot. Well, like <laughs> my wife will, I clearly identify that on a re- regular basis, but um, you know, we should be able to look back and go, yeah, we were wrong. Actually, we were wrong. Yeah. And five out of five out of eight points there, those were incorrect because we've learned more, and that's okay. Oh yeah, no. And, and sometimes uh, the the frustrating thing I think people go through when they talk to some of the scientists and the researchers is again, we want definitive answers, and many times they're going to tell you, "Here's what we know," and I also don't know if that would work or. Uh, when we've done this, we've done this part. And um, like I said earlier, I've, I've been a huge fan of a lot of the research out there. And I've also learned that sometimes I have to let the research play out for a little while because at the end of the day, like I said, all of those great people we've mentioned uh, who do this research will also tell you the part that we have a hard time saying is, I don't know. And they can tell you, here's what we know now but we learned this based on these conditions and this is what i can tell you right now and just like you said that could change if a new variable that we didn't think of comes into play and like you said too um you know there's the individual dog some dogs can detect parts per trillion 
other dogs just parts per million, you know? So you, you then have to add that into the equation of all these other things that we do, you know, and, and I'll end the podcast kind of on a comment that I, I was sharing recently, uh, with my trainer, which I then put on Facebook, which was understanding the difference between trace residual and lingering odor. And I will let people go learn these things on their own uh, because I want you to go learn it. There, there are differences between each level. And, uh, but we, we talk about many of these things almost in the same breath. We say that, you know, uh, residual means a lot of things. And then all of a sudden we'll use lingering and it means this and then trace means that. And there's actually very different, uh, in each one. So, um, but circling into that whole comment of, well, you know, we just pass things on to each other for so long that, uh, we just accept certain things all the time. So go out there, go learn, go keep making mistakes like me and Brad have both been saying, because that's super important to do. Um, I, you know, I've also learned that, and these are things I'm looking forward to sharing on our YouTube channel, things like that is our mistakes, because I learned a lot of people want to watch our mistakes and how we get through them than me just showing you how well certain, certain things work. (laughs) So, uh, and I'm sure for your students, the same thing, your students probably love it when they're watching you problem solve something with a a dog that you got, correct? Oh yeah. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. For sure. There's no doubt about it. And I just always try to cut that off in the past early on saying hey, I don't have the answers there's nothing about me that's saying I got this figured out I never have I'm not putting 10 second tidbits <laughs> up of perfection somewhere that took 20 trials to get it and posting it I make more mistakes than, than I do get things right probably and and that's okay I'll just keep pushing forward yeah because like, like I said I the failures is what helps us learn and uh, I, I, I want to find and go through those failures to figure out what works, but what works may work just for that dog. And then I'm on to the next one and it, it didn't work again. So it's, but all those tools will make all of us better. You know, that's why we're doing the podcast. That's why, uh, trainers such as yourself are out there sharing the knowledge because, uh, we're, we're trying to share all the things that we've been through as, as trainers in this industry. Well, operational vulnerabilities have really not much to do with what you can do mm-hmm. um, and much more to do with what you can't can't do. <laughs> and the only way you find out what you you can't do is by making mistakes and and then you then you try to reduce those vulnerabilities. So if you just practice what you can already do well, you're not really helping um, you know operationally mm-hmm. your capability very much because you're not addressing the important part, which is what you can't do. Yep. Absolutely. Well, Brad, thank you so much for coming on to the, uh, the podcast here. And, uh, I definitely look forward to, you know, seeing you here again in the future. And, uh, um, I'm sure we'll run into each other at one of these seminars. And if people want to get a hold of you, if they happen to have questions, what's a way that they can reach you? I know, like you said, you're not a, uh, social media person, but if someone wanted to, you know, there's that budding handler or trainer, what's a way that they could find you if they had some questions? Um, I think probably the, I can give you my email address yeah. if you want to post it there. That's, yep. that's fine. And then they can, uh, they can track me down that way. I work as a, we have a nonprofit in Canada called the Canadian Police Canine Association. And, uh, I'm a director there. They can kind of track me down through there. I'm certainly happy to chat with anybody if they, um, 
want to talk with me for sure. There's no issues with that. Um, I just don't have a big social media presence or anything like that. So no, no. And, and I can, and I will always tell, I'll tell everybody, Brad is a wealth of knowledge. He has a ton of experience and background. And just like we've talked about this podcast, it's all because of the hard work he's put in and all the lessons that we've learned as trainers. So thank you for sharing all of that stuff with us. Well, thanks very much for having me. Uh, Yeah, I really appreciate it. I always like chatting about this stuff. So I appreciate you taking the time to, to chat with me for sure. Absolutely. Well, everybody, that concludes this episode of Canines Talking Sense, where it's okay to be nosy. 